Thanks for joining us for the Evoke Ag podcast series, brought to you by the team at Beanstalk. Evoke Ag is Australia's largest agri-food tech event designed by industry to encourage domestic and international delegates to connect and collaborate across three important areas, food, farm and future. In each episode, Beanstalk bring together startups, investors and agribusiness. We chat about disruptive innovations that are helping solve some of the biggest challenges in food and agriculture in Australia and across Asia Pacific. If you'd like to hear more in this series, please click and subscribe and share on social media. Hi, this is Graham Brown from Asia Tech Podcast. Welcome to the Evoke Ag Podcast series brought to you by the team at Beanstalk. In episode two, Cal and Rob tackle recycling and waste innovation with Richard McKay, General Manager Insights and Innovation with Vizi, and Olympia Yaga, founder and CEO of GoTerra. We hear about the strong entrepreneurial spirit in Vizi, a large family-owned company focused on packaging innovation for a better world. And Olympia is blazing the trail with her maggots robots, responding to the massive issue of crop and food waste. Both companies are making a big impact in the world of waste. This episode's crusty quote comes from Olympia about raising capital. The no was because your narrative didn't fit. It's how you tell your story. Enjoy telling your story. We'd just love to start at the very beginning. Uh, so maybe with you, uh, Richard, love to hear um, sort of where um, sort of where you where you came from, where you grew up, and and um, and what what your in your early days was was kind of interesting about the space you're now in. Yeah, sure. It's been a, a unusual journey, I suppose. I grew up in Melbourne, so always been in Melbourne, and uh, sort of never really had an. I wanted to be an architect when I grew up, and I don't know why that was the case, but uh, probably someone told me about how much architects earn. So. Warded myself off there, but um, I sort of always had a passion for food, I suppose, and cooking growing up in a, an Italian background family, and so I had this affiliation, and uh, as I sort of walk, worked through some, some early roles, I found myself, I didn't go to university until I was about 32, um, and so I sort of found myself in these roles. However, I developed a relationship with a guy who was... Uh, who owned a flavour company, so food flavourings and fragrances, and he became sort of a mentor, uh, and we sort of always had dinners and conversations about different things, and I always found an excuse to catch up with him. And he basically said, look, the biggest challenge I have is I'm trying to turn scientific people into commercial people. And I said to him, well, why don't you try and turn me, a commercial person, into a scientific person? And so he knew my background, and we worked pretty well together. So... I joined him in uh, the late 90s and, uh, you know, I'd been working for a while, done my travel and all the rest of it. And, and we started working together and we basically turned his business around from quite a small flavour company locally here in Melbourne um, to something that had a little bit more international reach. Um, and effectively, we doubled the size of his business. And that sort of led me on to, you know, a, a Fonterra, uh, well, was previously Kiwi Milk Products asked me to go and on the back of that success set up a business in the US. 
So I moved in, moved to Chicago for a couple of years and set up a, a new technology over there around food ingredients and came back and sort of found myself without a job because uh, it was a contract and uh, thought I will go back to university. Did my master's in, in a year uh, because it was sort of just sign the document and make sure you got it. And then I ended up working with Vizzy. So what was your master's in? In business, okay, generally. Yeah. Yeah. I um, decided to uh, do a master's thesis in emotional intelligence, which I probably have used quite a bit. Uh, with that unconsciously since. Uh, but yeah, I found myself at Visi more on the packaging side, but the benefit I found there and now into the innovation, but sort of found that I knew everything that went into products and now I understand everything that goes around a product. Um, so the intersection of trying to find and create new products and understand the challenges of our customers. But Visi's probably opened up a ri- range of different categories. And so fruit and produce, meat, poultry, seafood, dairy, and association here is all very much intuitive with what we do. Um, and now just really searching. I spend a lot of time in Israel, spend a lot of time overseas trying to find new technologies that we can match up with what our And it gives you a different perspective, I guess. Absolutely different perspective. I mean, understanding, and as we started, we sort of understand the whole supply chain. It's sort of one of those things. You understand everything from the inception or the idea right through to where the product ends up and, and then ultimately, in, in, in the case of our business, how it ends up back into... Uh, into new packaging, yeah, great, or new products, yeah, yeah. And so, what was what was um, what was what did the world look like as you as you grew up? That's kind of that's shaped the way that you you go about your day now. Uh, that's a really tough question. Uh, how's it changed? I suppose. I, I think there was sort of this gap. I'm of the vintage that uh, I was the last year at school, or maybe last two years at school, where computers came in. And so that was a real turning point. So I'm, I'm of a DOS education in terms of computers. And then you sort of had to, in the workplace, educate yourself on how to use it. And this thing called the internet is sort of stuck a little bit. So it's here to stay, I think. Uh, and I suppose as a result of that, we sort of realized that pretty quickly this communication and the ability to connect around the world. And I think from a food perspective, the ability to understand what's going on trend-wise, and Australia very much follows... I think a European trend from food, but also from packaging, probably more from the US. And as a small country, and you know, you realise the limitations of how small Australia is. When you travel, when you're younger, you understand that. But then also later on, you start to discover there's a big wide world out of there, out of, out here, and and not a lot of Australians, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but not a lot of Australians sort of truly appreciate what else is happening. We become very insular sometimes in the way we look at things. But you know, it. There is plenty of opportunity everywhere, range of technologies and, and products. And, and being, as you said before, being Italian uh, heritage, food's central to, well, to every day, the right? Basis of, it's the basis of your life, yeah. yeah. I worked on a farm in Italy for, for a year, family farm, and just understood the basics of planting things, understood the basics of you know killing an animal and eating it in the same day and, and, and managing to use everything that you have because you know it's a in in most country or most country parts of italy it's very much a peasant lifestyle it looks glamorous on tv as we see beautiful tuscan villages but the reality is it's it's still quite a peasant lifestyle today yeah so what sort of farm are you working on what were you so the traditional olives grapes uh for wine a little bit of uh, dairy from sheep and cows um or milk from both um but yeah it was pretty much 
you know, whatever you needed, a little bit of uh, fruit and produce or fruit and vegetable as well, but that was more to sustain. And, you know, the, the milkman still came three times a week and the uh, the bread guy came every day and always came at 12.55 because lunch is at one o'clock and you knew he'd get a glass of wine and something to eat. So uh, <laughs> that was uh, always well-timed and you could never get rid of him. So, uh, but yeah, no, it was uh, it was very much a different sort of uh, lifestyle too. Yeah, right. Sounds like you've seen, you've spent time all the way through the supply chain. Pretty much, yeah. pretty much, yeah. yeah. Yeah, great. And um, how about you, Olympia? Where where did you grow up, and 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 how did you how did you come to be in, yeah. in this space? Um, I grew up in Canberra. I uh, went to boarding school in Yass, um, which is sort of. I wanted to be on a farm from when I was very little. My family were Italians that were some of the first family in um, Canberra, and they owned uh, intensive chicken farm and hogs, um, and. So I always wanted to be back there, even though the family had sort of essentially moved off the farm. Um, so when I went to boarding school, it, it gave, I never came home. I was just always on my friends' farms and stayed there as often as I could. So I graduated from high school and went got my wool classing certificate in Cooma um, and then worked on a – I got a rural traineeship down in um, – Goulburn and did all those sorts of bits and pieces. I ended up in Darwin, um, worked at export cattle yards for a little bit, um, rode, rode horses, all the stuff that you do in the north, um, and ended up, I moved to the US in 2000 to do like, I guess the reverse of a gap year. So I was like going to go for 16 months, train horses, wear a big hat and like come home with experiences. Um, met a marine he was very pretty and so I stayed in the US <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't leave <laughs> um, and then planes flew into buildings and the war started so my husband deployed four times to Iraq and two times to Afghanistan in the course of 12 years and and what that meant was that this sheep person was not only stuck in a country that like doesn't do sheep um, but also stuck in a town that was remote from where the agriculture that I was familiar with existed. And so um, I ended up doing what most military wives do, which is sort of cutting their expertise to fit some sort of job um, and started off in photography and did some work in marketing and social engineering. And um, I did a lot of work for our um, the military unit in culture change and things like that. And so... Um, it's interesting because I hated that I didn't get to do ag while I was there. Like that was actually, I, I got to train up until 2005, but us um, made it too hard with my husband always gone to be training and having a small son. Um, and so I hated like every increment of not being doing what I wanted to be doing. But now upon reflection with where I am with my business, it's like, those generals that I worked with when we were delivering cultural change programs to uh, US Special Forces were like taught me the things that I needed to learn to do this. And they taught me like, if you can change the United States Special Operations Command, you can change anyone and change and help create narrative to anything. And so they actually were setting me up in this really odd way for where, what was going to happen when we came back. So my husband uh, got a traumatic brain injury on his last deployment. So I was like, oh, no, I'm done. Thank you so much. This has been real. And we came back to Australia in 2014. 
and I'm like, we're buying a farm, I'm going to have sheep and it's going to be the most epic thing ever. And then we went to the bank and they were like, oh, you've been gone for 14 years and your husband's this weird nationality that we couldn't possibly assess for credit and all of your equity and assets are American. And so, no, you will not be buying a post office anywhere. You won't like, you can't buy a mailbox. And so for me, it was like, now I'm angry because it's like, no, I played the game. I did the things. And so it was, it be, I think it's interesting how much you need to be pushed to actually really do things that are different. And, and when you can look, when you look back, sometimes your hubris will afford you this sense of like, oh no, I always knew. And it's rubbish. Like I had no, all I wanted to do was farm merino sheep on the Monero and wear a flannelette shirt. And that was it. And instead I'm maggot farming in a robot in a warehouse in Fishwick. And it's because I was looking for feed and I was doing all these things. So, um, yeah, you just change. Yeah. I'm interested in your your learnings from working with um, U.S. Um, special forces <laughs> and, and how that is has shown up in your life now and how you use that. Yeah, so um, I you can do two things when you're married to a military person: you can become involved or you can detach. Um, I couldn't do detach because I'm I it just didn't work for me, and so I became involved and like embedded almost. Um, and that meant everything from um, reading all their pubs that they trained with to being in command meetings to talk about family readiness, all of it. Um, and so I started to develop, understand patterns with how large organisations of any kind, corporate or military, manage inflammation flow, access, um, how they handle new ideas and how they incorporate them. And, and that was sort of the really pivotal place again I had ulterior motives about how I wanted to why I wanted to get that access and so I was driven and so when the door shut you just try another door or you try a different way but most of all it taught me that um, when you get no's you you can't say they said no the end I think the most successful lesson I learned from from the two generals that I worked with was that the no was because your narrative didn't fit the story that they were executing. And so it's not their job to help you fix that. It's your job to find the way to to make your narrative fit. And I'm not saying change what you do, but it's generally around how you tell the story. And so are you actually identifying the op-tempo that they are looking to address? Are you able to deliver credible answers to problems? And do your answers integrate with the ecosystem or are they disrupting the ecosystem? And whether companies say they do or not, they don't want disruption. You better fit in. And then they can call it disruption because it's different and it's change. But a lot of the time they want you to like, to, to actually affect change, you have to actually integrate so that it can become part of the change. You can't just walk in and set everyone on fire. Yeah, so, so um, sounds like it, it taught you more than anything resilience. Far more succinct than I went. Yes, good. And what, it, you know, I, I guess that's a segue into, you know, the, the challenges around uh, that we're talking about today around waste and recycling. I mean, do you see that as one of the things that, has stood in good stead for you as a startup. I I think I've always been resilient. Like a big family, couple. My mum was divorced twice. Like the resilience kind of is. I I think what changes is again for me. It's about 
why. Like, you can be as resilient as you want if you want something enough. If you're just trying to do something and it doesn't really have any impetus or any core sort of foundational anchor to a belief or a desire, then generally you will find a reason to say that no is complete and I will end. But when it's anchored in a belief or a desire to be somewhere, then that's when your resilience affords you the luxury of continuing to press on when you'd rather stop. Yeah. What's, what's your read on that, Richard? I mean, I know you, you're, you're in a larger organisation and, and you're sort of probably the other f- side of the fence from what um, Olympia's talking about. In some ways, yes, in some ways, no. I mean, you think about Richard, uh, Richard Pratt himself. He was probably, I think, one of the last great industrialists in Australia. He was a true visionary. I mean, he, he thought about recycling in the 70s before people thought about what recycling really meant, you know, and so invested his whole uh, sort of... Uh, ethos back into that and developed you know vertically integrated business circular type economy thinking and so forth so I've been fortunate enough to join a company like Visi and it's been 13 years now but in terms of it's a still it's still private obviously but it sort of has a very strong entrepreneurial spirit so there's things that we can do and you know there's urban myths around how investments came about on the back of envelopes and back of uh, handkerchiefs or beer coasters whatever you want to call but you know, whether the, whether they're true or not, it's sort of one of those things that the company, despite being large, still has a very family entrepreneurial spirit around it. So where it comes to investing in new products or new ideas, it's a very much a non-bureaucratic process. People internally may disagree with it, but once you reach out and get back out into the corporate world, and I'd call the true corporate world, uh, you find the bureaucracy starts to get in the middle. So we think almost... And we're, multi-billion dollar company but we still think like a, uh, a startup in some ways and you know the, the ability to be able to get capital the ability to be able to invest in a new business idea um, sort of generates a lot out of my area where we're coming up with new innovations but uh, it can be very easily escalated and we just look for customers we look to be able to grow with our customers or grow within a category that seems obvious and in sometimes in the case of say the, the recycled plastics that we were talking about before we're sort of just ahead of our time um, and you know it sort of didn't work at the start in the sense that we couldn't sell it all now we can't sell enough of it in the sense that there's you know we can't make enough sorry just in terms of the, the demand so look it's timing too sometimes you can be the best entrepreneur in the world you can be the smartest person in the world but luck and timing I don't think are fairly underestimated Absolutely. yeah can you tell me a bit more about the, the process of, of developing out the uh, recycled plastics and, and the, the failure and now success? Sure. Well, yeah, I wouldn't say failure. I'd say, again, probably comes back to the timing piece of things. Um, the, the way to sort of develop something like that is, you know, we, we looked at, uh, I suppose, our business from a paper side of things. And as much as, you know, the backbone of our business is around recycled paper, collecting from the curbside bin, taking it back to a recycling facility, turning it in or cleaning it and, and sorting it and back into pulp and then back into paper and then into a cardboard box so and thus the collection again so plastic sort of seemed an obvious one for us and we had a fairly good plastics business in size um, and we were looking at ways that we could deal with you know recycled plastics and we all know now what's happened with China in closing the door and a lot of Asia in closing its door to contaminated product and they all want clean product and it just makes sense but we sort of didn't have the foresight I would never 
openly say that we had the foresight that was going to happen, but we wanted a way to value add what we were collecting um, and find a different way to turn that into into new products, and and thus was the uh, the piece. The hardest part around that has been, and what we tried to do from a differentiation perspective is, everyone's been pl- reprocessing plastics for a while, but to get food grade recycled plastic is not an easy process. One from a certification perspective, and you know, coincidentally, the the standards in Australia just really didn't facilitate. So for Sands itself, didn't really have a regulation so we had to go to Europe and work out through our, through our um, machinery partners what they had done and we just basically followed the US and the European standards to be able to, to get the certification so that was one of the biggest hurdles I think that we had yeah okay so yeah you mentioned the, the circular economy and um, it's a it's a fascinating space and I guess I guess um, that's definitely overlaps with with where you come come in Olympia more from a sort of uh, I guess uh, an organic uh, perspective Um yeah, where do you where do you see the big opportunities where you can you can play with the likes of Vizzy and, and fit into their sort of business model? Yeah, I, well, it was just the question I just asked then. So, you know, my goal with GoTerra has always been to not focus on the production of the protein over the management of waste. Like the production of protein exists because of we ma- but we manage your as a byproduct. Part. That's correct. And so if we're going to consider our units as an opportunity to manage waste on site, then where do we integrate with manufacturers and processing plants and who can we fit help and and it comes back again to this ecosystem piece and so i actually asked when we were sitting down do you guys create daf which is a fractured water taking the oil and fats out of water after you've cleaned things because we can manage daf and we can turn it into feed for it we can just feed it to our insects and so we I'm at the point at GoTerra where we, we know the givens of where organic wastes are. So we know that they come out of retail, they come out of factories, they come out of ag. Um, but where else are they coming? Because generally the places that we aren't looking for waste streams are the ones that are the hardest to manage and or generally cost the most to manage because they're usually located in places that aren't easily accessible by uh, supply chains for waste management. They're usually in more regional locations and so the burden of that management ends up on smaller communities. Um, And so, yeah, for me it's more about an exploration of who's making waste streams and thinking past like that pile of food waste that everyone takes off stock images, which is like that that to me is livestock feed. When I Mm. see that pile of hort waste, that's not my waste that's wasted food and that i believe will be disappeared in the next five to ten years with improved packaging improved logistics um, improved um, waste to feed type systems that are starting to emerge they are not maggot food Um, those things are part of being privileged and western and they're not part of actual waste management challenges and so for me it's about figuring out where we fit and that's that's taking the thought process of what waste organic waste we can use is past that pile of food that we normally see and and thinking into other organic waste streams that are harder to manage so richard you know vizzy's been passionate about recycling for many years um how does it make you feel i mean the the latest news about having to send uh collected recycled plastics or you know material to a tip i mean i mean that that must be pretty hard to swallow because you've spent so much um, effort uh, and and sweat in terms of educating 
Uh, and but but uh, in terms of infrastructure and systems for Australia and relying on the likes of China to to process that waste. Well, we we typically don't send a landfill on the basis. I know there's been a bit of media was as, as soon as today of of, a, of another supplier. But um, in terms of uh, the our process, we're trying and and had you know set up trading markets through Asia to be able to manage the removal of product and who and how from a value perspective there's a lot of peace here and i was just listening to olympia that, that there's a few things here i think from a recycling perspective that we don't really appreciate and i think the consumers themselves get away with a lot because they can behave however they want but then they're happy to pass judgment however they like as well and i don't mean that as an adversarial thing but i think it's more an education gap and i think you know there was a few programs last year the war on waste sort of touched on those on how to get people thinking about how do we do that from our perspective we're just trying to look at a, a huge range of technologies now that moves or closes the gap between if you break the bin up uh, that we get from a recycling perspective, it's 50% paper, 30% glass, sort of bit of plastic in there, and then the balance, you know, is, is whatever there is. And it's the contamination level. So a lot of what government are doing uh, are taking the valuable recycling product out. So if you think about the future of our business, we're sitting there worrying about, okay, you reduce the amount of good product in the bin, which is the basis for our business. You increase directly the level of contamination that comes into the bin, yet we're going to be penalised if we can't process all that product. So it's a little bit counterintuitive and it's highly topical, obviously. Um, so that's been the basis of a few of my conversations uh, as of recent times, just in how we change that. So it's not a one person, it's not the consumer themselves, it's not us, it's not Olympia's business, it's a matter of everyone thinking together. But I think government has a big role to play in not only putting policy in place that sort of fits their immediate term, but really starting, I mean, this a get into politics but understand how that whole system is going to work into the future because there's we need other businesses recycling we need everybody recycling it's not a competitive market it's almost a collaborative market in the sense that there's only a finite amount of material but there's a finite amount of space that that can go into to be reprocessed. How, how well does Australia do compared to other countries? Nowhere near, nowhere near. It's you think of Europe. Um, you know, I've heard a, a number of stories about something like Switzerland. You are audited. Your bin is audited before it's collected. Uh, I know they do some audits here, but they have several bins. So, to process a yogurt tub, for example, you need to take the foil off, and the foil goes in one area. The plastic goes in another area, and the paper label around that goes in another area, another bin. So, and if you're not doing that, and it's clean then you think about what the impact of that will be, your, your rubbish builds up. But in Australia, it's the same thing. The more the consumer can do it in the right way, despite those products sometimes having value now as a return scheme, um, you know, the cleaner the stream. I can, I can vouch for that. In, in living in Germany, I was, uh, I think, of 16 different ways mm. recycling. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But it's doable, right? And that's what we continue to say is that, yeah. oh, they won't. And that's mm. an assumption that we make that has no foundation um back to the education piece so when we first started collecting waste streams in a beta program so we were like okay we're going to see what this looks like because <clears throat> organic waste 
in small quantities, like we're looking at five, 10 kilo buckets out of office buildings. Nobody wants to touch it, but we do. And so we were like, can we actually manage it? And so we started this program. And when we first started, we, we put this little sign up and it was just like, don't put this stuff in the bin. Well, that never works. But the first, about three months after we started, we sent out a, a little postcard type thing. And we just said, you've recycled this much food waste you had that many x kilos of contaminants and because you threw that many contaminants you affected our production of livestock feed by x amount so we gave them this like reason to care about why that what they put into these bins so we're now at the point now where we've actually scaled we're commercial we take fee for service on our waste collection Mantra Hotel, which is a massive hotel that does a has a full restaurant, so it does its morning buffet. It also has lunch and a dinner menu, and it does Sunday brekkie and all these big things. Last year, they were with us for six months, and their only contaminant in that entire six-month period was a spoon. Yeah, wow. So over two ton of waste and a spoon. And so it's totally – if that's a busy kitchen. Not There was not a toothpick. There was no sugar packets, nothing. And so it's just about creating impetus for the client and the consumer. They will get on board. People want to be participatory, but we've allowed them to not. And we've said this is about the waste manager and their responsibility to manage this problem. But then we are, then there's all these, you can't have a pile this high, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, and so it's like, well, I can only do one of the two. I can take the dirty waste if you don't want the consumer to manage it, but you're, I'm going to have a pile. <laughs> and if you don't want the pile then I'm going to need to push back on the other side of that conversation. And it comes, again, back to that ecosystem. How are we managing that and and are we doing it well? I think sometimes government gives the responsibility to corporates and um, I don't necessarily – this is a collaborative effort. This is an Australian challenge, not a corporate challenge. Great. Yeah, can can you tell us a little bit more about uh, specifically how your your solution works and how why your insects are so good for maggot robots? Maggot robots are so good for you know helping us transition to a circular economy that, sure. that works in a commercial way. Yeah, so uh, we farm insects on food waste, and there are a variety of different insects that can manage different types of waste. But the kind of most talked about is the black soldier fly. So it is a maggot or a larva of that fly. Um, they are basically food waste. That's what they want to eat. Seventy-five percent fruit, and veg, twenty-five percent meat. They can handle everything from clean hort waste through to putrescible, so Karen's lasagna from the office or something, a bunch of cherries, for example. Um, so, And they do it efficiently. So we have a five-to-one conversion ratio on post-consumer food wastes at GoTerra, which means we can take this stuff from Mantra Hotel or the 11 McDonald's or all these places and we homogenize it and that waste stream is consumed at a five to one ratio. So for every hundred kilo of lava, they're consuming 500 kilos of waste and they're doing it in less than 12 days. So the result of that consumption is about 5% what we call non-waste uh, non-food waste, sorry. So it's bread bag ties, uh, the stickers from fruit. I hate those things. Can we get rid of them, please? Um, the tea bag, because that's often plastic. Um, little things like that. So it's about 5% is that stuff. And the rest is either lava, so 
insects that are high in protein and can be turned into livestock feed or frass which is everyone's word of the week it's insect poo so we have at the end of this management of of food waste we have uh, in a very short period of time we have a protein that can be used to feed livestock or human consumption or we can um, and we have a nutrient that's good for soil conditioning so we decided that to put that in a big factory, as is the most of my colleagues' uh, business model is a large factory footprint, and to drag food waste to these large factories. And in a very basic sense, that's just a replication of landfill. So we truck large quantities of heavy stuff to a central place and we manage it. And that makes no sense, particularly for me when we looked at the Australian landscape. So it was like, I need these things to be containerized and modulized. Let's, can we do this on site? So the process now is a five, we 20-foot shipping container. Um, the, there is a hopper external. The client puts their food waste into the hopper. It can be direct pumped or it can be by hand depending on the operation. Um, that hopper manages the maceration, fermentation and heat treatment of the waste. Again, that depends on the waste stream. And then also the conveyance of that waste into a controlled environment where the insects are managed. And at the end of the 12 days, we suck them all out, we reseed it down and we continue the circle of life. So that's a maggot robot. Um, The first on-site trial is mid-March. Building hardware is hard. They don't say that for fun. (laughs) 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 But it's also amazing and I think... Although um, from a startup point of view, I am built mixing software and hardware and biological tech and that's like probably all of the no things at once. Um, but it's compelling, right? Because if we can do this and we can decentralize it and do it regionally, we've solved a lot of problems and we've created opportunity out of challenge, which is, is unique, I think, to where we're at right now. Yeah, great. And Richard, you guys at Visio are on the forefront of, of uh, I guess, building your own technology and, and also looking at new innovative technologies coming through and, and have been for, for a while. How, when, you, when you hear about Olympia's story and the technology they're developing, how do you, um, how do you think about how, how many do you want involved? to buy? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get my order. <laughs> Sorry, that was you. in the mail. <laughs> It's we operate on a commission basis, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. Well, we've all done well out of this, haven't we? <laughs> it just costs me the money. <laughs> uh, no, look, I, I, we're assessing technologies all the time. And I think it's sort of one of those things where, especially in this sort of space that we're in, so the ag space, but also the recycling space as well, it's about trying to find, it's a bit matchmaking. So how do you find who needs to do what? And so Olympia and I are meeting today, you know, there might be an outcome that we didn't know about that I'm learning of right here today. But uh, I suppose for us, we assess a lot of technologies and a lot of technologies very quickly. And to our detriment or to our advantage, we often do the commercials. And I think you touched on it as well, Olympia. Once you start moving waste, you can't add value, any more value to waste because it's got only a limited value as it is. So it's a bit like turning you know, a product into another product and you've got to ship it. Basically, they say you ship anything more than 100 kilometres, it's lost its value. And that's primarily uh, one of the challenges we have with sort of when you look at new technologies. How do you assess 
a range of things because I think it's that total cost of ownership or total cost of development that people don't truly assess. There's some fantastic ideas out there, but geographically challenged, uh, obviously commercially challenged can be a big one. But when we look at it, we just try and match up what our customers are doing, how it associates and assists them. And Visi would always look to get a commercial outcome of it, but it's not always about that. It's about how do we find, and you intersect so many different technologies at so many different times. How do you match them with who you know? Mm. And our network, you know, we've got 12,000 odd customers. So there's, there's enough of a network there to be able to find a home for most things. And very much in our innovation space, we've just taken the philosophy that if we can connect some people together and they get a great outcome for it, fantastic and that's where we get a lot of technologies walk across my desk and i'll just say okay i think you should talk to this person this person or this person if we can help we will but it's normally we we try and stick close to our it's a bit like a meeting of minds it is a little bit it's a bit like and we 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 did a speed dating thing in israel where we met um 30 companies in two days and they literally walked in and had you know five minutes to pitch to us you can see startup alley here and they so they'd pitch to us and as one guy who came in and who was talking about a water um that he developed that was a filtration then he said he, he sprayed himself in the eye he sprayed himself in the mouth and said look it's all clean and possible and he started telling jokes but then his uh, son said to him you're wasting time dad you've got to pitch the technology and he kept <laughs> joking up, and he didn't get on with it so he's uh, literally the next guy who was due to came in come in just walked into the room and oh, said right you're over that's it your time's up and the Israelis are very much like that. They're like, you know, we're pitching today. That's my opportunity. Don't mess my time up. Pulled him out and then we had the next one. And, and in fact, the next one that came in was the best one that we saw for that day. So we're just used to assessing and understanding technologies very quickly and trying to connect people who, you know, can, can benefit from it as well. For both of you, what about, you know, scaling outside of Australia? into Asia in particular. Is that, is that on your radar, Olympia? Yeah, so I, it's hard. Um, I, I say we're an Australian company with a global vision. It's, it's a hard thing to say because we're like in execution mode and we're in our little shed in, in Canberra, but I do believe that we have a solution that can that fits with countries that are challenged by urban um, high urban dense environments with s- limited opportunity for traditional organic waste management and or where by you know the challenge with things like bioreactors and methane gas capture um, you've got to get blends right you've got to have you know, I can't take this waste today because I took too much of this waste we don't have those challenges and so um, we feel like we fit a few more times than our the competitive technologies um, and so yeah places like Singapore um, Papua New Guinea places there's a few different countries overseas that we see as being beneficial places to have GoTerra exist but we are also very new so I say that and but I'm also very focused on what's going on in the big green shed in Australia so it sounds like some of that vision that Vizzy had all those years ago. I think you have I mean, to think about it. Like you can't just say, I'm big, going right? to manage food waste in Canberra and maybe Goulburn, right? Like that can't be, you don't... But it might be today. You might yeah. run into somebody who lives in China or That's lives right. wherever and they just say, hey, we'd love that. That's right. And you say, okay, I'm going to jump on that. Enough and I didn't go. think I'd find myself in That's North, right. you know, wherever. Sure. Yeah. So it's sort of, I think you've got to take the opportunity when it presents itself. Yeah. And, and sometimes open. the... 
the dynamics in a particular market might be different to where you've looked. Yeah. And as you say, with high urban build-up, you know, a lot of organic material, and you might just go, I never thought that was the case there. Mm. And I think you've just got to be open to opportunities as they come across your bow. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, as, as, we, as we sort of close out, I'd love to hear... Um, you know, what, what's a message, um, we'll start with you, Olympia, what's a message that um, you wish everybody knew about the space, about the, 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 um, the thing that you do every day? Like what is something oh, sure. that you wish the whole world knew about that space? Um, I wish people realised how much they waste. I wish people had the, met- the actual weight metric behind how much food they throw away. Um, I wish that it was more prominent in their thoughts because I think we get to the end of the week we take all the gross stuff out of the fridge and we throw it in the bin um when you see it start to pile up in an actual business it's actually it's quite confronting um and so I just wish that humans had a little bit more understanding about how privileged we are that we can buy so much food and then literally turn around and throw it away um because I believe we do better things with it if we understood that more completely so yeah great I suppose I'd answer, you know, Vizzy's motto is for a better world. So uh, for that reason, I mean, we're trying to remove as much waste as we possibly can. And I think to Olympia's point where consumers themselves, and I'm a consumer, so I put myself in that same bucket. I mean, we changed with plastic bags at supermarkets and I was only just with my wife last week walking in. We said, how, we, how normal is this for us today? And it was a small shift and, you know, that behaviour change. So we can do it. I think there's, um, you know, some, 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 I suppose, disappointment at the level of a consumer when they don't see a big tangible outcome. But if you start to look at the, the amount of plastic bags that aren't in our recycling system, for example, now, that was one small change, one small behaviour change. So slowly, slowly, I think we'll get there and, yeah, we hopefully to create that for a better world. Fantastic. Great. Thank you. Well, yeah. it's, a, it's a serendipitous meeting of the Italians today. It and was. I didn't ever think. Italian Greek. Yeah. <laughs> potato, potato. Ah, you know, we're all in the Mediterranean. That's right. We eat because we are. Yeah. <laughs> Not because we're hungry. Not at all. No, it's because I have feelings of That's any right. kind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, for me, what was really great was to hear, you know, from a corporate perspective and also from uh, yeah, it was really the other end and... and also, obviously, you're at different ends of the, the spectrum in terms of the business, but also how many commonalities and shared vision around yeah. challenges. Are the challenges. Same. Yeah, yeah they sure. are, absolutely. Yeah. It's great. Thank great. you. Um, Olympia, where can we find you on the interwebs? All of the places. All of the places. I'm everywhere. Um, GoTerra CEO on Insta and Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Medium, blah, blah, all of it. Yeah, I'm everywhere. Okay. Great. Richard? Same for Vizzy. <laughs> <laughs> we get around. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's one of those, uh, yeah, all the, all the normal social media places. And, and look, we've got a great website too, just in, in the old-fashioned website. Oh. You know, it still works. Um, so, you know, we've got a few videos, a few education things up there. But, um, yeah, we can, we can easily be contacted as well. We're really great to have you in the beaten pot. Thank great. you. Thanks yeah. for having us. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, Thanks, great. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to the Evoke Ag podcast series brought to you by Beanstalk Ag Tech. Visit evokeag.com for more podcast interviews and event information.